0: we turn now to our scripture lesson for this morning's sermon as we continue our study of 1 Corinthians. We come now to the final verses of chapter 1. So we'll be looking today at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 26 through 31. So I invite you to turn now to that passage. And we'll read here the word of the living God as he inspired the Apostle Paul to write these words to the church at Corinth. And So, having been inspired by God, this is the inerrant word of the living God as we read 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh... Not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us this time. We pray that he will bless the reading the exposition and the hearing of His Word for us this morning. Last time we noted that the world, those who are perishing, consider the message of Christ crucified for His people's sins to be folly, to be foolishness. But Paul said, The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, of course, nothing about God is actually foolish. There's nothing about God's character that is actually unwise. Certainly nothing about God that is weak. But God shows his greatness by using things that man considers foolish and weak. In today's reading, the Apostle gives us further insight then into why the Lord has chosen to do things in this way. Why use the so-called foolish cross and the foolishness of preaching it? Why would God do that? Well, the ultimate reason, of course, for this is, as it is the ultimate reason for all things God does, for his own glory. Now remember, if I do things for my own glory, that's arrogant because I'm not worthy of that. But God is worthy of all things. God is infinite, eternal. He is all things that deserve to be glorified. He is good in every way, and so he should be glorified, and it would be wrong of God not to recognize his own need to be glorified, which would make him less than uh, glorious. Uh, So, of course, God knows, and it is appropriate that God would glorify himself. For his own glory, God, therefore, as we see in this passage, number one, chose what mankind considers foolish things, in order to put human wisdom to shame. For his own glory also, God chose what man considers weak to put to shame human strength. Third, for his own glory, God chose what men despise to show the emptiness of what fallen mankind values. Fourth, he also for his own glory chose a people in Christ. Fifth, he displayed his wisdom in Christ for his own glory. And finally, sixth, for his own glory, God justified, sanctified, and redeemed a people for himself. These are the things we'll see in this passage. Many of you will be familiar with the Children's Catechism that is based on the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It's interesting to me that when the catechisms were first published in the 1640s, that the larger catechism was was said to be for adults in the Shorter Catechism, for children and the simple-minded. And uh, and many of us who are not children and don't consider ourselves simple-minded still have a, a bit of difficulty memorizing the Shorter Catechism. And we've uh, created a children's catechism in the last century or so that, that, uh, that has uh, simplified the Shorter Catechism even further. As I recall from my childhood, when I was about in first grade, learning the children's catechism. It begins with the question, who made you? I was actually uh, very gratified this past week to, to hear my wife asking our little girls uh, questions like that, and hearing, particularly Serenity, who can articulate words a little more clearly, saying, God. The first question of the children's catechism Who made you? The answer, of course, is God. And what else did God make? God made all things. Why did God make you and all things? For his own glory. As you recall, my little sister stumbling over that saying, For Him own glory, when she was about four years old. For his own glory. The Shorter Catechism simply asks its first question is what, what is the chief end of man? I've always found that amusing because uh, uh, philosophers have struggled for centuries to try to find out, find out what is the meaning of life? And our first catechism question that was meant for children was what is the meaning of life? What is your purpose? What is the chief end of man? Not, not necessarily the sole purpose, what is your main purpose, right? What is the chief end of man? The answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. We know that our purpose is to glorify God. But why do these catechisms teach this? That God does these things for His own glory. He created us for His own glory. Well, it's because it's a major teaching of Scripture. God does what He does for His own glory. And that is proper Again, it would be wrong for me to do all things that I do for my own glory. It would be wrong for you because I'm not God, you're not God. But God, the infinite one has every right. And it would be wrong indeed if things were not done for his own glory. And so he does all things for his own glory. Paul tells us that very thing in this passage. He concludes these verses with a quote from Jeremiah 9.24. He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. God does not desire that we would finally glory in any fleeting thing. That doesn't mean that we can't enjoy things that he's created. But he doesn't want our final glorying, our final boasting, sometimes this word is translated as boast, to be in any lesser thing than him. Not in any fleeting thing of this world or in ourselves or even in good and majestic things that He has made, but only in Him. Think of David's words in Psalm 8 that uh, we look at the heavens above and we wonder, what is man that you are mindful of Him? Because that creation is glorious. And yet, it's really just reflecting the glory of its creator. And so, David doesn't say, I look at the heavens above and I think, what a glorious thing that is, and stop there. <laughs> but he looks at the heavens above and he sees how glorious that is. He says, Well, how much more glorious must be the one who made this stuff? As the Reformation statement of purpose goes, Soli Deo Gloria, for the glory of God alone. It's the glory of God alone that is our aim as God's people. As Paul says, the reason that the Lord has chosen things that the world considers to be foolish or weak or despicable is, as verse 29 says, that no flesh should glory in His presence. That is, that in the presence of God no flesh would glory in itself. It's not saying that you wouldn't glory in in the very presence of God or about the presence of God, but that you would not be glorying in yourself in God's presence. Now sometimes in scripture, flesh refers simply to human nature in general. As John 1.14 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Right? That's just talking about God the Son taking on human nature. Often, and especially in Paul's letter, flesh is used to Uh, to shorten or sort of as a shorthand for the fallenness of human nature, sinfulness. And here we can see applications for both uses of the word flesh. No flesh, no human being, can glory in himself or herself before God. But especially those whose wisdom and strength the Lord is exposing as foolish and weak, those who are perishing, have no right to glory in the presence of God. Habakkuk 2.20, this is a good statement for us when we are tempted to glory in ourselves. The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. When you want to glory in yourself, just cover your mouth. Keep silence before God. What do I have to boast of in anything, myself or anything else other than God if I'm looking at the glory of God? Human nature has no right to glory in itself. To boast before God. Even, even if we had never fallen into sin, we would have no such right, right. Because anything we have came from Him. But we in our fallenness want so desperately to glory in ourselves. That's always a temptation. So God has made sure to work salvation in such a way that the glory can only be seen to be his and his alone. He who glories, let him glory in the Lord, Paul says. And So we'll see here in this passage that God does these things for his own glory and rightly so. For his own glory, number one, God chose what men consider foolish to put human wisdom to shame. In verses 26 and 27. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh. That's a good qualifier there. So he's saying there is wisdom, and he's going to talk about that later. There is wisdom for those who know Christ. That is a wise thing. But the world doesn't consider it wise. And so, uh, for you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty. Not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. So our focus here first is going to be on the fact that God chose not many wise according to the flesh. As we'll see in a couple of weeks, Lord willing, his people possess a wisdom that the world cannot understand. Again, this is not something we can boast about and say, look at how wise we are. Wish everybody else was just as smart as me and then they'd all be Christians. No, that's not the way it works because we only have this wisdom because God revealed it to us. And we have glory in God and not ourselves because of it. But not many who are wise as man would count such things were chosen, especially in the first generation of the church at Corinth. And God had a particular reason for that in that particular context especially uh, God has certainly called intelligent people to himself very well educated people to himself and over the centuries he has gifted the church with many learned teachers but even they are often considered stupid or foolish by the world you know, some of the smartest people who've ever lived have been Christians and yet the world generally considers them pretty stupid, because they're Christians. <laughs> and certainly the world considers the average Christian to be an uneducated rube, a buffoon. Uh, for evidence of that, just look at how evangelical Christians are most often depicted on television and in movies. Small-minded, bigoted, often psychologically abusive to their children, almost always ignorant of, of basic common knowledge, uncouth because they, you know, are so ignorant they don't even know how to act civilly, right? Backwards, anti-scientific hicks. basically, that's the general, uh, the general picture of an evangelical Christian in the media. Sometimes it's a little nicer than that, but often that's what you see. Well, I'm not going to take the time to answer each of these stereotypes today, but I'm sure that you've seen that kind of thing. You've seen the way Christians are depicted in popular culture. And I'm sure your experience tells you that that's actually nonsense. God, in order to show that it is not of human learning or wisdom, especially In the midst of the Corinthian culture, which prided itself on its level of learning, uh, chose to save many who were not considered learned, who were not considered wise or well educated. God did that on purpose. Because salvation does not depend on brain power or education level, it depends on God. Think of how if you went to a church and the only people that you saw in that church had doctorates. You would think, well, salvation is only for people who have that level of education. But God chose not many. He didn't choose some. Paul, Paul didn't say he didn't choose any, but he he doesn't choose many. And particularly in Corinth, he didn't choose many who were considered wise and learned, well educated, and that showed that salvation didn't depend. On being smart, it depended on God. To display his glory, God chose what men consider foolish to put human wisdom to shame. Secondly, we see here, for his own glory, God chose what man considers weak to put human strength to shame. In verse 26, not many mighty. God chose not many mighty. The word for mighty there in in the Greek is... Dunatoi it's it's literally means those with power, those with ability. It comes from the same root from which we get our word dynamite. You know, dynamite is called that because it's powerful. Right? It's, at its most basic, it simply refers to being able to do something. The, the verb form of it is what we usually translate as can or to be able. In this form, it especially means those with power in society. It can mean personal physical strength like a mighty warrior or like a mighty athlete or collective military strength, a mighty army, a mighty state or nation because it has a big army but especially political and economic power in society. The, the people that we would label great in the history book, right? Great men and women of the world, the powerful elites. God chose some such people in Corinth, And over the centuries he's chosen many. But they're far outnumbered by those who are not powerful. Most God has chosen have not been those with great political or societal influence or power. Indeed, if you read comments made by the pagans about Christianity in its early centuries, you'll find that many considered it to be a religion of slaves. Many people looked down their nose at Christianity because it included so many who were not powerful and great as man considered such things. Certainly there were prominent people involved in the early church, but there were many more who were just average workers, uh, many poor, many slaves, many peasants. And God used a church made up of those predominantly unpowerful people, predominantly lowly people, to transform a society, even Western civilization itself. So that it came to be in a few centuries, by the way, after this, that the people who lived out in the boonies, who were considered the hicks and the uncultured people, pagan Pagan just means somebody who lives out in the country. That came to be the word for somebody who worshipped multiple gods and didn't worship the God of the Bible. But far more profound than that, God is building his kingdom overwhelmingly of those that the world considers inconsequential. Indeed, we find that Christianity flourished for centuries despite the efforts of the most powerful men and women in the world to destroy it. And that continues to be the case in many parts of the world today. The church flourishes in China, for example, where the government does everything it can to end the existence of the church. It tries it by draconian measures and just outright persecution. It also tries it by sort of trying to infiltrate the church. There's a law, I understand, in China to this day. that says that if a church has an image of Christ, which of course we don't put images of Christ in our worship spaces, but, but if a church has an image of Christ, it has to have an image of Mao and the current President Xi uh, on either side of Christ... Uh, which one of our brethren, their former pastor here, Bruce Martin, said reminded him of the thieves, the criminals crucified on either side of Christ. But in any case, they try to infiltrate the church. They try to control what it teaches. But they won't ultimately succeed not in controlling the true church. Finally, even the emperors of Rome, who... Many of whom, generation after generation, tried to destroy the church, gave way to it. Sure, some in the Corinthian church, like Crispus and Sosthenes, had been leaders among the Jews, who were nevertheless still a marginalized people among the Roman Empire. Others, like Erastus, the city treasurer, were leaders in the local government and also Christians. But most people in the church were not of such standing in society. And God did that on purpose, Paul says. The church succeeded by God's power, not because all of the powerful people in town happened to become Christians. It didn't succeed by human power. It succeeded by God's strength. In verse 27, And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the strong. It's not by human strength that one is saved. It is by God. God chose what men consider weak to put human strength to shame. A third thing we see here is that for his own glory, God chose what men despise to show the emptiness of what fallen man values. In verse 26, not many noble, literally not many well-born. We don't have as much of a sense in our society of being born into a particular status. We do not do know that, that it's more advantageous in some cases to be born in certain families and in certain places. But it made a much bigger difference in ancient times. Sure, Priscilla was a founding member of the Corinthian church, and she was most likely, judging by her name, a member of the Gens Prisca, the Roman senatorial family, among the highest born in Roman society. But she had kind of kicked that to the curb by marrying a Jew. So that's a, that probably took her out of that, uh, lost her some of her status, let's put it that way. But, but not many were born to such high status. Rather, God chose many who were at the opposite end of society. The powerless. Verse 28, and the base things of the world, the lowly things of the world. And the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Those things which are not high. Those things which are not grand. Those things which are not worthy in man's eyes. Those things which are not noble as the world judges such things. Those are what God has chosen, Paul says. This shows again that the growth of the church and the salvation of individuals does not happen by human influence, but by God's wisdom and power. For His own glory, God chose what men despise to show the emptiness of what fallen man values. So if you find yourself faithfully serving Christ and you find that you're despised, don't be surprised, because mankind despises these things. A fourth thing, that God has done for his own glory, is that he's chosen a people for himself in Christ. The first part of verse 30, but of him you are in Christ Jesus. God has placed his elect in Christ. It's of him, and you're in Christ. They have been identified with Jesus. Therefore, his perfect righteousness, Christ's perfect righteousness, is laid to your account if you are in Christ even as your sins were laid to his account. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And so we are counted even as having been raised, ascended, and seated with Christ Jesus in the heavenly places. Ephesians 2.6 says, God raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So of him, of God, By His doing, we are in Christ Jesus, identified with Him, with our Savior. For His own glory, God has chosen a people for Himself in Christ. Number five, for His own glory, God displayed His wisdom in Christ. In verse 30, Paul speaks of Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God. That which man considers foolish, God made a display of his own wisdom. Christ whom the world rejected. Christ who was lowly himself and despised. Christ upon whose cross the unbelieving among the Jews stumble. Christ whose crucifixion is folly to the so-called wise of this world. He is shown to be wisdom from God. For how else might God both be just, judging righteously all sin, and also the justifier of many who have sinned, showing His love for His creatures made in His image. How else could He do it? What a wise way to do this. It took God to figure out how this needed to be done, and how this would be done for His own glory. God demonstrated and fulfilled his all-wise, all-knowing, saving plan in Christ Jesus. For his own glory, God displayed his wisdom in Christ. And lastly, number six, for his own glory, God has justified, sanctified, and redeemed a people for himself. I could have broken those each into separate points, but they all go together as Paul puts them here. In verse 30, saying, Christ became for us righteousness and and sanctification and redemption. Christ is not only wisdom from God, Paul says, but also righteousness. His perfect righteousness is imputed to his people. Jesus didn't just die for your sins, he lived a perfect life for you. And so his perfect righteousness is imputed to his people, causing us to be counted as if we were that righteous. That's what we call justification being counted righteous in God's sight. He's also, Christ is also our sanctification, Paul says. He's our being made holy, both in terms of what we call immediate sanctification, immediately being set apart unto God from the world and from uh, its coming destruction, and in terms of what we call progressive sanctification, our becoming more like Christ over time. Christ is our sanctification. And Christ is our redemption. He is the price with which we have been bought. He's the price that bought us out from under slavery to sin. And it's consequence of death. The Reformation Study Bible rightly states, Salvation by its very nature does not depend on human values, even those in the Corinthian church who might have been justly admired could not have claimed they were chosen because of their good qualities. Glory not in your own wisdom, nor in that of others. There are some really wonderful, smart, well educated Christians in the world. Don't glory in the fact that you are among them, that don't be a Christian because you think that smart guy or that smart lady is a Christian, no. Glory not in yourself nor in the wisdom of others. Glory in God's wisdom, whereby in Christ you have been called into his kingdom. Glory not in human strength, but rather in God's strength, whereby you have been saved. Glory not in what the world values, but rather glory in what God says is good. Glory in the fact that God chose a people for himself in Christ. Glory in the fact that his wisdom is displayed in Christ. Glory in the fact that he has justified, sanctified, and redeemed you if your faith is in Christ. In short, glory in the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, grant that all that we think and say and do might indeed redound to your glory. Teach us not to glory in vain things, but rather let us ultimately glory in you and you alone as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.